In this episode, we discuss death, gore, and some homophobic language. If you think this may upset you, please consider skipping this one. Welcome to Read It in Theaters, a podcast where I watch it. And I read it. I'm Hava. And I'm LB. And today we're talking about The Haunting of Hill House. We're structuring this a little bit different because it's going to be a longer, much longer, more in-depth conversation about a larger topic. So this will be part one, where we're going to talk about specifically The Haunting of Hill House and its adaptations. And then in part two, which will go up on the same day, so if you're listening to this, it's already up, um, we're going to talk about The Haunted House metaphor and the genre that has spawned from it. Sounds good. Um, Hey, LB. Yeah. Please tell me about The Haunting of Hill House. Oh my god. I've been waiting for this one. So, I think the Netflix series is different than this. But It's extremely different. I'm honestly not even going to get into it that much. I'm excited to get into it. We're getting into it. Oh, okay. At least to an extent. <laughs> anyway. Sure. Um, so, it is a book where <clears throat> Dr. Montague wants to investigate haunted houses and so he finds hill house and then wants to get the biggest reaction from it so he sends out a bunch of letters to people that have been involved in uh poltergeist activity or like ghost shit at some point and sends out letters inviting them to hill house and eleanor and theodora are the only two that respond and then there's another character luke who is going to inherit Hill House from his aunt someday, and his aunt insists that Luke be there as well. And so they all gather in this house and have some experiences. Okay. That's exactly what the first two, well, what the first film is about. I heard that the, what was it, 1963? Yeah. uh, Version is a really good adaptation. It's fantastic. I watched it one and a half times. The half being because I woke up late today and didn't have time to watch it again before we recorded. Love it. I was... I watched about half of it. (laughs) I was reading through the last two pages of Hill... Or last two chapters of Hill House again this morning. So something right off the bat that is really interesting to me when it comes to adaptations is when people change character names. And for some reason, the characters' names are slightly different or completely different between the first, the book and the first two film adaptations. Really? Yeah, so you said Dr. Montague? Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't look up how to pronounce it, and, and I have dyslexia, it, so sometimes I, like, completely make stuff up, but it looks like Montague. Montague sure is a name, so okay. it's probably that. <laughs> but in the 1963 movie, he's Dr. Markway. Oh. And in the 1999 movie, he's Dr. Marrow. Oh. It, and I guess that's fine, but I just wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> I guess what's wrong with Montague? Exactly. Marrow's a little spookier, I guess. Bone marrow. I guess. But yeah. Montague's fine. But they also change his name in both, his first name in both films. Hmm. So does he have a first name in the book? John. Okay. So he's John Markway in 63, and then he's David Marrow in 99. Why? <laughs> Yeah, it, I don't know. That's kind of hilarious. It, it's just weird. <laughs> they also change. Um, what's what's Eleanor's last name in the book? Oh shoot. Um, 
written down. Let me see. Well, in 1963, she's Eleanor Lance. No, it wasn't that. Okay, and then in both 99 and in the Netflix series, it's Vance with a V. Vance with a V. That's it. Okay, so why for 1963 did they make it Lance? <laughs> yeah. Good question. <laughs> it's one slight change. And then with the character of Luke, too, in 1963, his last name is Sanderson with no D. Weird. Uh-huh. And in 99, it's Sanderson with a D. Yeah. Yeah, it's Sanderson. Just odd choices. Yeah, that's, I wonder why they did that. That's fine, I guess. But, like, what a weird thing to do. Yeah. Like, it doesn't really change the story at all to give them different names here's, but just why did you do that <laughs> here's my theory if we want to jump right into it okay um hill house exists in a state of perfect reality according to the book oh okay the quote is no live organism can continue for long to exist insanely or exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against the hills, holding darkness within. So, by saying that Hill House is not sane, that certainly implies that it exists under conditions of absolute reality. That is so interesting. And I want to go back to that in part two. Yes. Because I have a lot of thoughts about the house as a character, but I don't want to get into that yet. Right. So here's my theory is that all adaptations of Hill House star variations on the same characters. Oh, so you have a multiverse theory. Yes. They're playing the same roles and are like the same people, but within that new universe, whereas Hill House is a fixed point across multiple universes, which is why there's this through line in the book, and I assume the movie adaptations, where Eleanor has been here before and she feels like she belongs here and has such a strong reaction to all of it because she has been to Hill House so many times and has this connection with the house. That's a galaxy brain take. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You texted me and said you had a galaxy brain hot take. I wasn't... (laughs) prepared for it to be that (laughs) but I like it I want to explore that especially because it lends itself so well to the mere concept of adaptations yes and there are definitely so many little things about all three adaptations that I am going to talk about Mm -hmm. where there's so many different callbacks and they're also like intrinsically linked even the 1999 one which was objectively not good not 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 a great film Um, I have heard that also I wouldn't say it's the worst movie I've ever seen but it was oh boy it didn't do much for me uh yeah and we've talked about the series a little bit because you've seen the Netflix series before and this is my second time reading Hill House yes this was actually the reason why we wanted to start this podcast yes this was where we got the idea because I watched the Netflix series in 2018 when it came out and then you read the book and we realized the two were vastly different but had so many connections yes that it was a great conversation and we were like we should just we should record this yes (laughs) so here it is Okay, so I want to give a brief little synopsis of the changes in the adaptations just to try and, you know, keep us 
not to confuse things, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> we don't want so to jump around too much. Well, and like when I refer back to 1963 or whatever, I want to at least give you a chance, give everyone a chance to like know which version that is, like mm-hmm. its own little internal world. So 1963, as far as I'm aware, is pretty much the same as the book. Um, Dr. Markway is, you know, he wants to he wants to investigate supernatural things and the current owners of Hill House are like, world, we sure would like to know if there's an afterlife. Go ahead. <laughs> And then, yeah, they they send Luke, who's the woman who owns it. That's his nephew. Her yes. nephew. God, sorry. <laughs> um, and he doesn't believe in the supernatural. Yeah, it's hard to say in the book because it's presented so much from Eleanor's point of view mm-hmm. that it's it doesn't really get into what the other characters believe and to what degree. That's interesting, because in the movie, Luke is... They all have really strong characterizations in 1963. Mm-hmm. And Luke is a, like, college grad fuckboy. Yeah, that's that seems pretty and, accurate. And his entire interest is to inherit Hill House, sell everything in it, and potentially, like, break down the house to sell for materials and just make a ton of money off of it. Yeah, that's interesting. That's not quite his motivation. Well, it's it's unclear what his motivation is in the book. But again, it's just that it's so from Eleanor's point of view that like she I'm not sure a crush is exactly the right word. We can get into how those uh Luke, Eleanor, and Theo are characterized as children in the book later. Yeah. So I don't think crush is quite the right word just because there's not the maturity there. But she has a fascination with Luke, which I think is where we get the characterization of him being like, oh, yeah. Okay, so in the in 1963, she is fascinated and attached to the doctor. Oh. And she and Luke don't really have much of a relationship at all. But in the Netflix 2018 series, she and Luke are twins. Interesting. Yeah. And they have like a, a twin thing that they, they, that's what they call it in the series where they like literally are like psychically linked and they feel each other's pain and stuff like that. That's super interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Especially because again, like it's not exactly a romantic interest because they're not mature enough to have romantic interests, but there is this sort of... <laughs> Yeah, like, connection with Luke that she doesn't quite have with Theodora. Like, she has kind of an instant connection with both of them in a siblings kind of way. But the relationship with Theodora is much more contentious. Okay. Okay, well, I like that. I like those changes, just for the sake of, like, variety. Yeah. Um slightly back on track (laughs) yeah sorry that's okay we this is gonna happen this is a big conversation okay so that's 1963 in 1999 totally different premise we have supposedly doctor (laughs) it's just let's just get right into this (laughs) so (laughs) uh god what did i say his name was marrow dr marrow is a highly unethical parapsychologist oh 
And he's not investigating the supernatural because he doesn't believe in it. What he's doing is trying to hold a wildly unethical study with people who suffer from insomnia to try and induce, not hallucinations, but like to induce some kind of delusional fear and study the fear response to see why we haven't evolved out of it. Wow. Yes. So he tells them that they're participating in an insomnia study, but that's not what they're doing. <laughs> and there's even a scene right towards the beginning of the movie where we, we meet the character of Dr. Marrow and we find out that this is what he wants to do. And he's talking to one of his colleagues who's straight up like, you can't do this. It's unethical. <laughs> he like straight up is like, what are you doing? If you get caught, like, oh my God, you can't do this. And then that's never like brought up again. He's just like, oh, well, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then it's never explained, like, how he gets away with it. What the hell? Like, his colleague doesn't report him. He's just like, wow, I disagree with you ethically, but I guess I'm not going to stand in the way of you taking three strangers who suffer from insomnia out into the middle of nowhere to a creepy house to trick them into thinking it's haunted. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very weird. <laughs> And so right away, and as far as I'm concerned, there's like a breakdown of this through line because, and I I like it better now that you've pointed out, well, not pointed out, but now that you've stated your theory that it's like a multiverse and that the house exists as it is in all of them, Mm -hmm. because there is still like Nell still has a weird connection to the house, but it like doesn't make sense. (laughs) because it's not supposed to be haunted so it's almost like they set up the story to be like oh all these people are going to be surprised when they find out the house actually is haunted but then it's so focused in on Nell's weird connection to the house that it becomes completely her story and it's almost like why why did you set up this premise to begin with huh it's very very weird and so That's interesting yeah so in 1999 Theo, Luke, and Nell are all strangers who just signed on for this study. Hmm. Yeah, none of them have any connection to Hill House. Well, Nell does, but she doesn't know it. And uh, and yeah, like they they don't know that it's haunted going into it. It's just we're participating in an insomnia study that for some reason is in the middle of nowhere in this giant house. How weird. It's so weird. And when... The- I think Theo asks about it. God, let me see if I wrote it down. Because it's just... I didn't. That's so upsetting. But he gives some... So Theo says something about, like, hey, what's up with this big old house that we had to come stay in for this study? And um, and Dr. Marrow is like, oh, well, isolation is essential. Why? <laughs> yeah, it's just like, okay. <laughs> no one questions it. It's wild. So that's... That's the setup for 1999, which okay, we can explore that later. It's a shit show of a plot in 2018. And this one I'm not going to get too much into, partially because it's so, so different from the others that it would just like I could we could spend a whole two part podcast just talking about the 2018 version. Yeah. Um, and because it is recent enough and I think that it's good enough that I actually don't want to spoil it for people. Okay. If someone is interested in watching it and hasn't seen it yet, like, I don't want to 
give too much away because I, it's really good and I think you need to go into it not knowing. But the premise for 2018 is they have it set up so that they're actually following the Crane family, who in previous versions were the people who built the house. Yep. And in this version, God, what's his name? Hugh and Olivia Crane are house flippers. Oh. And they purchase Hill House to fix it up and sell it so that they can then afford to build their dream house. Interesting. Uh-huh. And they have five children, Stephen, Shirley, Theo, Nellie, and Luke. And the story switches between the adult lives of the children where they're coping with the trauma that they suffered while growing up in Hill House and then their very skewed, repressed memories of what actually happened in Hill House hmm. when they were kids. Um, and it it explores their relationships to one another in both places and like sort of how unaddressed trauma can destroy a family and it's very good. <laughs> what an interesting theme to have picked up because that is um I do we want to get into the house as a character in this part of the podcast or in part 2? I think we can get into it a little bit but I want to save it more for part 2. Okay, because I think that the house um if we're reading it as a metaphor rather than taking things literally the house in the book is a metaphor for the perpetuation of trauma and abuse yeah i i would agree with that yeah so that's i think really cool for them to pick up on and to actually cast them as children because again you have this um eleanor theo and luke are characterized as children and Don dr montague is characterized as the father figure Um, we can get into the representations of mothers at some point but the house is the metaphor for the mother so there's this really interesting moment in the 1963 version where they're in i can't for the life of me remember what this room is called because it's a room only rich people have in their houses Um, i think they call it the parlor in the book it's the room with the fireplace and stuff no 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 it's um it's one of those plant rooms is it a conservatory yeah Okay, so they're in the conservatory, and there's this really big statue. A lead pipe? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it caught me off guard. <laughs> Fuck. They're in the conservatory, and there's this really big statue of the Crane family. Mm-hmm. And the Hugh Crane, as a character, also has vastly different backstories. I would like to put it. A- I would like to put a pin in the statue. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to talk about it right now. Yeah. So in this version, Hugh Crane um, built the house for his wife. She died before she ever saw it by crashing into a tree on the grounds. Mm-hmm. Is that what goes down in the book? Yeah. Okay, yeah. And then he remarried. His second wife fell down the stairs and died. Yeah, I don't remember 100% how she dies in the book, but yeah, she also dies right away. Yeah, and then, but then he has a young daughter, Abigail, from his first marriage, who grows up and inherits the house. So there's this okay. statue in the conservatory of the characters in the movie, like, are speculating on who it is, and they're like, oh, maybe it's Hugh Crane, and maybe that's his first wife, and that's, you know, that must be Abigail because she's a child, but there's another woman there, and they speculate that it is the young woman that. Abigail, as an old lady, hired to be her caretaker and companion as she was 
falling ill and dying. Mm-hmm. And as they're looking at this statue, I think Theo says this could be a family portrait of us as a half joke. Mm-hmm. And then she points to Dr. Mark Wayne is like, you'd be Hugh and Nellie, you're the companion. I'd be Abigail, but as a grown woman. And then Luke is like, well, where do I fit in? And Theo just goes, you're the dog. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I think it's interesting that she casts Eleanor as the companion because mm-hmm. um, there's never like a direct parallel drawn between them. But Eleanor, when they talk about the companion in the book, is immediately concerned about the companion and clearly has a connection with her. Aha. Uh, they never describe the statue. I'm trying to find um, what they do say about it because they talk about it like it's malformed somehow. Oh. One entire end of the drawing room, right? It's not in the conservatory. It's in the drawing room. Oh. Was in possession of a marble statuary piece. That's all they say in the narrative. But then um, it just says... That it was huge and grotesque. Eleanor put her hands over her eyes and Theodora clung to her. I thought it might be intended for Venus rising from the waves, the doctor said. Not at all, said Luke, finding his voice. It's St. Francis curing the lepers. No, no, Eleanor said. One of them is a dragon. What? Yeah, they don't describe it, but it's apparently grotesque and wrong. And different to all of them. Yeah. Theodora says, it's none of that. It's a family portrait, you sillies. Composites. Anyone would know it at once. That figure in the center, that tall, undraped, good heavens, masculine one. That's old Hugh patting himself on the back because he built Hill House. And his two attendant nymphs are his daughters. The one on the right, who seems to be brandishing an ear of corn, is actually telling her lawsuit. And the other one, the little one on the end, is the companion. And the one on the other end... Is Mrs. Dudley done from life? Luke interrupted. What? (laughs) Yeah, so I have no idea what it looks like. (laughs) What? But it is apparently odd. (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) Okay. uh, Well, that sure is a thing. (laughs) It's just a statue in the movie. (laughs) It is not... Just a statue. Wow, that's a book. whole thing. Yeah. It's it's only in the 1963 movie, too. Interesting. So, about the companion, in the 1963 movie, there is a direct uh, comparison between Nell and the companion, because Nell took care of her aging mother, and the companion yeah. took care of aging Abigail. That's true. But both old women would knock on the door when they needed something from their from the younger woman who's taking care of them, and both younger women ignored a knock the night that the old lady died. Ooh. Yeah, so Nell has this guilt because she didn't answer her mother's knock, and then that was the night her mother died. The companion ignored Abigail's knock, and then Abigail died. Yeah, that's not in the book. They do have... They don't really talk about the companion taking care of Abigail 
at all. They mention that she exists as a companion to Abigail. Okay. And it's never stated expressly that Eleanor ignored the knock from her mother, but it is, like, implied. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's missing that direct connection with just those, like, two little additions. Huh. Um, the other thing is that Shirley Jackson has a lot to say about female relationships. And I'm shocked. <laughs> and so <laughs> Abigail, I actually don't remember what the sister's names are off the top of my head. I think they just call them the older sister and the younger sister. Pretty sure no one gets names. Okay. So the younger sister inherits the house. No. The older sister inherits the house because the younger sister is already married off, so she doesn't, like, need the money. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as the older sister hires the companion, starts raising a stink about it because that's her inheritance. And huh. allegedly, according to the companion, sneaks into the house and steals things and like runs up and down the halls and like will just break into the house in the middle of the night and do a bunch of weird crap okay. which there's no evidence for. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Damn. Mhm. And then continued to she did actually do this but continued to like come to Hill House and just like rail at the companion from outside. <sighs> For decades after oh, the older sister died. What? Yeah. Holy shit, lady. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <It's> tight. <laughs> yeah, until the companion, I think, also died and sells the house to no. And the Sandersons inherit it from her somehow. And then the younger sister, like, just gives up being mad, I guess. Damn. That's wild. Yeah. So, how, wait, how does the companion die in the book? I don't remember. It must have like, not just, struck me as important. Just, okay, so not the same as she does in 1963 then. Probably not. In 1963, she inherits the house and slowly goes insane. Oh, no, that's right. Yeah, she does. That's right. Okay, yeah, she um she hangs herself from the wrought iron staircase in the library. In the library, yeah. Yeah, so those are the differences in the film versions. I really want to talk about characters because I love the characters so much and I want to know all the different ways that they're that they change. Okay. So are the Dudleys, the caretakers of the property, like a thing at all in the book? Yeah. Okay. Cause I love them. Hello? Hello. <laughs> She wanted a cuddle and then she screamed at me. Can you hear her? I heard purring? that. No, but I okay. heard the screaming. I think her toe got caught in my sweater and she blamed me. Uh. Um. Anyway, <laughs> Mrs. Dudley. Mrs. Dudley. The Dudleys are different in every version. Which okay. Is great. They're the most similar in the film versions. There's just something so charming about charming. <laughs> Hold up. Let me finish about black okay. and white movies where everyone is still speaking with a transatlantic accent. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> because in the 1963 version, Nell is the first one to arrive at the house and she pulls up to the gate 
and Mr. Dudley shows up and he just goes, what do you want? <laughs> and she's yep. like, I want to come in, please. And he goes, says who? <laughs> it's just so like, wow, who's this guy? <laughs> and they're yeah. conversation, like, he's so weird. And I do find it weirdly charming as a character trope because he's just like a weird dude. Mm-hmm. And he's only in that one scene in 1963 where she's just like, um, I'm here as Dr. Markway's guest and I'm expected. And he's just like, well, Dr. Markway's not here yet, so I guess he can't be expecting you. It's just like, why are you being such an asshole? It's so weird. Uh, and he like t- accuses her of being afraid. But then when she pulls through the gate, like he sort of backs away from her car in a particular way. And she's like, well, it looks like you're the one who's scared trying to like get back at him. And he just goes on about how like, you think me and my missus couldn't have things any way we want it since we're the only two who will stay around here. <laughs> like This weird pompous middle-aged guy who just like shits on Nell for no reason. <laughs> but it's like weirdly funny. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I think I get the impression from Mr. Dudley that he's like, I bad things happen to people that come to this house, so like, don't come here. I mean, he definitely like says things like that, but he says it in like, I don't know, just like a he's yeah. got a weird mannerism about him where he's it's almost like a dare. Yeah, he's kind of an asshole. Yeah, he's kind of an asshole. Yeah, and I think they were trying to do that in 1999, but in for whatever reason, I don't know if it was the actor's portrayal or the writing, but in 1999, it literally comes off as if it's supposed to be funny. Okay, yeah, no. It's, it's supposed like, to be, it's funny because it's absurd and, like, weird and uncomfortable, not because it's funny, you know? Yes, yeah. And I think that's what makes the initial impression of Mrs. Dudley interesting, too. Mm-hmm. Um... In 1963, she answers the door for Nell and says nothing. She's just standing there. Okay. And it's, like, so weird. And this is right on the heels of Nell's interaction with Mr. Dudley. So she, like, introduces herself. She's like, I'm one of the guests. Are you Mrs. Dudley? Mrs. Dudley just nods. Thing. Says nothing. And then she just slowly stands aside and opens the door for Nell to come in. And they just stand there for a second. And Nell is like clearly waiting for something and then awkwardly is like will you show me to my room and mrs dudley just like starts to walk away yeah that's pretty much how it goes in the book but then she goes on this fantastic monologue does Mm -hmm. she go on a fantastic monologue in the book she does and i just want to note that she goes on that monologue word for word for every guest yes (laughs) which is so unnerving it's such a good monologue, though. Do you have it? Will you read it? Yeah. Assuming I it's the it same down. one. I It's got to be the same one. I think that they pulled a lot of just straight dialogue from the book. I set the dinner on the dining room sideboard at six sharps, she said. You can serve yourselves. I clear up in the morning. I have breakfast ready for you at nine. That's the way I agreed to do. I can't keep the rooms up the way you'd like, but there was... There's no one else you could get that would help me. I don't wait on people. What I agreed to, it doesn't mean I wait on people. I don't stay after I set out dinner, not after it begins to get dark. I leave before the dark comes. We live over in town six miles away, so there won't be anyone around if you need help. We couldn't even hear you in the night. No one could. No one lives any nearer than the town. No one else will come any nearer than that. In the night, Mrs. Dudley said, and smiled outright. In the dark, she said, and closed the door behind her. 
Oh, that's so good. I love it. So yeah, same same spiel, slight variances. Yeah, and I just want to note that Eleanor was responding in between lines, but it just Okay, makes, that's what I was going to ask. It makes absolutely no difference, so I didn't bother having them in there. Right. Okay, so what I love about the 1963 movie is because Eleanor is responding the first time, mm-hmm. it almost feels at first like they're actually having a conversation. Right. Because Mrs. Dudley says, I leave before the dark comes, Eleanor cuts in and says, well, but your husband, and Mrs. Dudley says, we live outside of town. Mm -hmm. So it flows at first like a normal conversation, and then when Mrs. Dudley says, no one will come any nearer than that, than nearer than town, Nell looks very uncomfortable and is like, yes, I know. (sighs) And Mrs. Dudley just keeps going. But in the movie, she gets through the whole entire thing. And then there's a pause, and then she smiles and walks away. Ooh. It's fantastic. And then when she goes through the same spiel with Theo, who's the second person to arrive, Mm -hmm. Nell goes into Theo's room and is introducing herself before Mrs. Dudley can even start talking. Mm -hmm. So as they're introducing themselves and chatting, Mrs. Dudley is saying her spiel in the background. Ooh. But she's like clearly trying to cut in so that Theo will pay attention. But she has like she's following a script. She has yeah. no other way to say it. Yeah. And she eventually gives up in the movie. I think she gets to. She just says that she leaves before the dark comes. She clears up in the morning. And the whole time she's been talking, Theo and Nell have basically been ignoring her and talking over her. So at that point, she starts to leave. And Nell, with this, like, little mischievous smile, is like, no one comes any nearer than town. Isn't that right, Mrs. Dudley? And Mrs. Dudley turns around with that creepy fucking smile and is like, yes, and then finishes her spiel. Ooh. (laughs) It's, like, so ooky. That is so creepy. But it's so good. (laughs) Yeah, no, in the book, she pretty much just goes through the spiel and it doesn't matter what the girls are saying to her and they are like responding off and on but then like Eleanor also says a couple things with her which honestly Eleanor be more creepy dude Eleanor chill (laughs) Eleanor Uh, is such a creep I love her she's such a creep do you have any idea how old Theodora and Luke are no no clue me either I Theo and Nell, by the looks of them, seem like they're about the same age, and I would say probably like mid thirties. Mm-hmm. And Luke, like I said earlier, just seems like a post college fuckboy. Mm-hmm. So you know, mid twenties maybe. Eleanor is thirty two in the book, and it doesn't specify for anyone else. So I'm just, okay. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I I love the way that Nell sort of oscillates between yearning for Hill House and being absolutely terrified of it. Yeah. I think, so you said in the book that she immediately feels at home there? No, she's uncomfortable, but she definitely feels a connection and feels as though she's been here before. In fact, when she sees it for the first time, she, it takes everything in her to not just start crying because of how horrible it looks from the outside. <laughs> It looks evil. She gets there and she's like, oh my god. <laughs> wow. In the movie, she thinks of it as vile when she yeah. first sees it. I don't... And it I think her... Vile. 
let me see. I had her first impression written down because I was just like, whoa, shit. Um, While you're finding it, I think that it's really interesting that when she's at the gates, like, arguing with Mr. Dudley, she thinks mm-hmm. to herself, Hill House, you're harder to get into than heaven. Um, yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was a really interesting thing to have in there when you as the author know what the house is like. Yeah. And then when Eleanor rounds the bend and sees the house for the first time, there's like this disillusionment almost. Huh. At how horrible it is. Interesting. Uh, so the thing in the movie, she goes through the gate, she gets up to the house and she parks and there and there's, there's no... Like, a lot of the movie is just her internal thoughts, playing oh, voiceover style. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So her first thought upon seeing the house in the film is, it's staring at me. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And then it- she goes on to say that it's vile, and it's horrible, and she even says at one point to herself, you're being given a last chance, you could run away. Yeah, that's in the book. Yeah, and then she pauses and is like, but... Eleanor, you're already running away because she's fleeing her horrible family. Yeah. The book, our introduction to Eleanor is her being gaslit by her sister and her sister's husband, who she lives with. Yeah. Same with the movie. It's Eleanor saying that she wants to go to Hill House and she wants to take the car that they mutually own that they both bought with their inheritance from their mother dying. And it's the sister and her husband basically talking over her, not listening to what she's saying and just going, well, I don't know how I feel about you taking our car as in the couple's car, not like it's the sister's car, not Eleanor's. Yes. And just being like, well, that is my car, you know, and I don't know how I feel about you taking my car and Eleanor being like, it's half mine. We both bought it. And the couple just completely ignoring her and being like, well, we were going to go on vacation. And what if we need our car that we own and you don't? And, you know, I don't. It's definitely yeah. not an accident that that's how Eleanor is introduced. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's that in the movie, too. And they even say her sister even says, well, there were very good reasons that mother didn't want you to go anywhere. Mm. Hmm. And that never really gets addressed. Although the the couple's horrible little child is there too. Mm-hmm. And Nell, again, I just, I really love the way Nell is characterized because in this first impression of her for the like viewer, whatever, she is arguing and really like attempting to hold her own. But then again, she like oscillates between it's my car, you can't stop me from taking it. And then sitting down exhausted on the couch and she like needs a minute because it's just so tiring. So she's like weirdly strong in her convictions, but very delicate. Huh. And she like sits down in like a moment of anxiety because she can't win this argument. And she starts rapidly blinking, like squeezing her eyes shut, like clearly as a way to try and calm herself down. And this horrible little child in the corner just goes, Auntie Nell is blinking. Auntie Nell is blinking. (laughs) Damn. Yeah. Like even the kid is like, we make fun of Nell in this house. (laughs) It's messed up. Yikes! But it's a it, like it's a good representation of how that kind of emotional abuse works. Where like yeah. even this child knows that they, she can pretty much do whatever she wants when yep. it comes to Auntie Nell. Yep. So okay, as far as characterizations, we've talked about Nell a little bit. 
and Mrs. Dudley. Um, what are your takes on Theo? Theo is a big, glorious, fashionable gay in every version. Yeah. That's and true. that makes me so happy. It's not even subtle in any <laughs> of them. Even in 1963, maybe it would be for someone who is straight or who isn't very aware of the various euphemisms that were used both to discuss queer people in the 60s and also by queer people in the 60s to find each other. Mm -hmm. But it's Theo is just gay slang left and right in 1963. Love that. And Nell, in, in her own... I guess, societally acceptable way, calls Theo out on being a lesbian. Mm -hmm. And it just honestly just made me really happy because I was like, wow, I, it wasn't just me. I didn't just want her to be gay. She is gay. <laughs> yeah, I would say that it's more subtle in the book. It pretty much boils down to talking about the fact that she has a roommate whose gender is left ambiguous. Uh oh, <clears throat> in the movie, she doesn't specify her relationship to that person. Well, she's talking she's talking about fixing up the house that they bought together. Yes. And they don't say, oh, that's just her roommate. They just right. are, are like, you know, the person that she lives with and is clearly emotionally close to. Mm -hmm. In the movie, she just she says we while she's talking about it. And then Nell says, oh, are you married? And Theo gives her a look and yeah. goes, no. Yep. And that's kind of the first time that you go, oh. Maybe Theo is actually gay. Mm -hmm. But from her very introduction, you're like, oh, this this woman's a lesbian. For uh -huh. sure. Like, she's very fashionable. She's very mod in the way that she dresses. And obviously confident. And um, right when she and Nell meet, she... So she introduces herself as Eleanor. Theo introduces herself as Theodora. But then casually in conversation, Theo refers to her as Nell... And is like, that is the affectionate term for Eleanor, isn't it? And Nell is like, oh, yeah, I suppose it is. And Theo just goes, well, the affectionate term for Theodora would be Theo. And it's just like the way she says it is like, you're fucking flirting with her. Mm. <laughs> and then when Nell says, I can tell we're going to be, we're going to be close. We're going to be great friends. Theo goes, oh, like sisters? Which if someone's unaware, that's a thing that lesbians or women loving women would say to to defend their closeness to their girlfriends. When when questioned about it, it would be like, oh no, we're just so close, we're like sisters, mm. to hide the fact that they were actually romantically involved. And then it became a slang term to try and like feel out if another woman is flirting with you. So I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. And I picked up on that when I watched it and then went, oh, but you know, maybe I just want her to be gay. Mm -hmm. Um, but then throughout the movie, it's like, oh, no, she genuinely is. <laughs> Fun. Yeah, which was really cool. And I like the relationship that she has with Nell in 1963 because Theo, it's stated and demonstrated that Theo has really strong ESP. Mm -hmm. And because of that, she's like instantly protective over Nell. In a way that, like, it's definitely flirtatious, but you start to see more that it's a protectiveness because Dr. Markway definitely, like, kind of leads Nell on. Like, Nell has a crush. She's not super subtle about it because she's very socially awkward. 
And Dr. Markway doesn't like dissuade it at all. And right from the get-go, Theo sees that and will find ways to insert herself and get Nell away to try and like be alone with her, but also to try and like stop her from getting hurt by this like shitty married man. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not really flirting between them in the book. It's very, I, I think it's very clear that Theo is a lesbian in the book. Um, but they, they don't flirt. And I think that it really is more sibling like, Mm -hmm. which I like better for the purposes of the book. Yeah. Um, and yeah, of course, Eleanor has her almost crush on Luke. Mm -hmm. Like I, again, can't even really call it a crush. And, um, I think that we do see a little bit of Theodora trying to protect Eleanor, but there's again it's all from Eleanor's point of view so we have at first they have this very friendly sister-like relationship and then there's an incident where Eleanor let me look at it it's Luke goes to see if Mrs. Deadly will make them more coffee and she won't because she sets out lunch at one and those are the rules. That's what she agreed to. I love her. <laughs> She's such a good character. But when he comes back on the hallway, it there is written, help Eleanor come home. No punctuation, mm-hmm. which I think is okay. really notable because mm-hmm. um, it could be, I think the initial take is that, because this is on the heels of talking about how her mother died three months ago. So I think the initial take is help, period, Eleanor come home because it mm. it's meant to be read as her mother needs her help come home. But there's no punctuation, so it could just as easily be read as help Eleanor to come home, with the two being implied. Right. Help Eleanor to come home to Hill House. Right. Uh, but the, sorry. Oh, go ahead. To, no, to no, my point ahead. about Theodora, she um, then becomes kind of nasty to Eleanor, but it's mm-hmm. from Eleanor's point of view, and we also have to take into account that Theodora has that ESP and knows what Eleanor is feeling and thinking, and so when she suggests that Eleanor, Eleanor, Eleanor <laughs> wrote that on the wall herself to get attention. Like, she's not pulling that out of nowhere, right? Right. Like, Eleanor immediately gets angry and is like, why would you say that? That's horrible. I'm terrified of this. But, you know, Theodora knows those things. Yes. Yeah. So the book, from Eleanor's point of view, frames it as, well, Theodora just wanted to put the attention back on herself. And... Mm -hmm was saying that to be mean instead of saying it because she genuinely thought that. Yeah. And I think that that gets into what I find so interesting about Nell's characterization is like you're saying, like we've been shown that Theo knows stuff Mm -hmm. and she's right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, she's not pulling it out of nowhere. She's reading Eleanor and going, you want to be the center of attention. Mm -hmm. And that's like such a good little thing to know about Nell and it kind of clarifies I think some of her weird behaviors yeah 
because you had said in the in the book that she feels like she's been to Hill House before. That's not the way it is in 1963. Okay. She just wants to be at Hill House because she wants to get away from her family and she wants to experience something because she's spent so long taking care of her dying mother. That's definitely part of it. Yeah, that's pretty much her only like main motivation at first is just like, I just want to go do a thing. But she also gets into these delusions about I'm going to a place where I'm going to be accepted. Yeah, And they've invited me. They want me here. And after the first dinner that she has with them, she's like, these people are my friends and I belong here. Yeah. I've done my waiting. I've earned this. Yeah. But it's almost at first presented more so as she just deserves to live a life. Mm -hmm. And then it's Theo throws out the whole you want to be the center of attention thing. And that kind of. I don't know. It sort of like fits in and makes you go, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, like, really is she's very self-centered when it comes to her motivations. Yeah. And so, like, did she write that thing on the wall? Don't know. Here's my <laughs> my big unanswered question. Okay. She That gets written on the wall. And then later on, the next, like, poltergeist thing that happens is Theodora's room is trashed oh okay and this goes a little bit to um my interpretation houses represent mothers but they also represent mental health and so hill house normally you see houses becoming dilapidated or otherwise physically unlivable as the character's Mm -hmm. mental health declines in this Mm -hmm. case it becomes emotionally unlivable oh that's fascinating yeah And, you know, it's not a mistake that the first poltergeist thing is knocking on the walls in a way that Eleanor mistakes as her mother. Yes. Because it's about the perpetuation of the abuse and trauma that Eleanor experienced taking care of her mother for 11 years. Anyway, Mm -hmm. Theodora's room gets trashed. And this is after Eleanor has started to project what she dislikes about herself onto Theodora, such as oh. the desire to be the center of attention. Oh, I think you could definitely read that from the movie, but I didn't. That's, I like that though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I just love the way it like entangles their relationship that much more. Yeah. Where there's all of these different things that you could you could read from their relationship, but you don't really know which one it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think that's true of the way that Nell interacts with, in the movie, Dr. Markway. Hmm. Uh, After the room is trashed, Theodora says something to the effect of, because Eleanor says that she's going to go get the Luke, the Luke doctor. God damn it. (laughs) Luke and the doctor. Some kind of day. (laughs) And, um, and Theodore is like, why wasn't this a surprise just for me? Um, right. Because she picks up on the fact that Eleanor did this. So here's my big unanswered question. They go to her uh-huh. room. Uh, help Eleanor come home is written on the wall in blood. Um, all of Theodore's clothes are ruined. It smells horrible in there. The first thing that they note is the horrible rotten smell coming from the room. Cool. And then... Like, three days later, 
Mrs. Montague gets there and examines Theodora's room, and there is no damage. Everything is fine in there. What the hell? How? Why? What does this imply? <laughs> what? Is does? Go ahead. <laughs> that means that it's all in their heads, right? Or it's a haunting. Well, but I then mean, if ghosts, it just with the if the idea like okay, it's a ghost. Okay, if they can destroy a room, why can't they fix it? Yeah, I guess. I, it's just, I mean, there are like no rules and no. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know anything. My take on it. It's really left ambiguous as to whether or not Eleanor is the source of the haunting or the victim mm-hmm. of the haunting. I and see, my hot take is she's both. Right. That's kind of what it feels both. like. So here's my thought: if we if we want to get into houses as a representation of mothers, real quick. Okay. No, we got we got to save that. Okay. Well, because because that's gonna feed in to a lot that I have to say about the 2018 version. Okay. I guess just mothers in general then. Jackson's feelings yeah. on mothers. There are three yes. older women in this book. There's mm-hmm. a throwaway character who's an old woman that Eleanor literally runs into in the beginning of the book. And she is immediately shown to be greedy, jealous, mean, and unforgiving. And like cusses Eleanor out for knocking into oh her. Oh my god. Yeah. And Eleanor's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Maybe I could replace your items. And she's like, no, because I took these from the party that I was just at. And you can't get more of them. So, and then goes on about how everyone got the better treats from the party. And she had to take this cheesecake. And now it's ruined anyway. So, damn you. Okay. Sorry, lady. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Damn, calm down. (laughs) The other two older women are Mrs. Dudley, who is cold and... Mm -hmm distant at best and mrs montague who comes to the house and is abrasive and demanding and rude and ruins their good time that these three people and their father are having um right mm. um and i i think it's really telling that mrs dudley and mrs montague are the only two that have a civil conversation conversation with each other And tellingly, it is about the young people in the house, and it is discussed over housework. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So my theory is that Eleanor is the source of the haunting, possibly also the victim, and Mrs. Montague investigates these things. That's like her thing that she does. She's here to investigate it and have a seance and like get evidence. Wow, opposite from her in the movie. So I think the reason that the room is cleaned up is so that Mrs. Montague will not have a paranormal experience here. Oh, damn. Oh, there's so much to unpack. (laughs) Right? This is why we need two parts. Yeah. (laughs) Huh. So how is she in the book? Well, hold on, because I also think it's really interesting this this mother figure thing because we have the two obvious mothers of like Mrs. Crane who died and left Abigail alone mm-hmm. and Nell's mother who Nell more or less let die mm-hmm. so at least in Nell's mind a mother is something undesirable 
Interesting. See, I think that the house represents the mother, which we won't get super into, but she mm-hmm. thinks Hill House, you're harder to get into than heaven. And then when she sees it, she almost cries. Yeah. And that well, is... and she like had a contentious relationship with her mother. Right. She wants a mother that loves her and that she loves, but all she gets is contemptuous codependency. Huh. The doctor's wife in the film, Nell doesn't like her, but it's presented as a jealousy thing because she didn't know, she didn't know that the doctor was married. So she's like got a thing for him. He isn't dissuading her. And then his wife shows up out of nowhere. So gross. Yeah. And the wife does not believe in the supernatural and thinks that her husband's work is ridiculous. Oh, interesting. Which, first of all, how have y'all stayed married? Like, she doesn't approve of what he does. And she's there basically because he didn't want any publicity. And she's like, hey, um, people are talking about this in town. Like... I've heard that that the media is on its way here. So like you got, we got to leave. And he's like, no, we're on the verge of a breakthrough. I can't leave. And she's like, well, I thought you'd say that. So I'm staying. I'm not leaving until I'm not leaving until you have the good sense to give this up. And he's like, grace, what the hell? (laughs) It's very weird. So she shows up just to get her husband, basically. I mean, she very much does not approve of his work, but that's because he's stupid and incompetent. (laughs) Because they're, a married couple and she's the mother so right she shits on him the whole time she's wow. like well i know that you're always right about everything but i just have to say i know that you love correcting me but i just have to say but you know it's not an accident that that's how mothers are portrayed in this book yeah so what i what i like is this idea that in the in the film at least I think it follows that you know maybe Nell doesn't doesn't appreciate mothers but also in some ways just doesn't appreciate other women yeah because even she has this initial closeness with Theo but then after the writing on the wall appears they get into an argument and that's when Nell calls Theo out for being a lesbian but what she says is I'd rather be crazy than be like you ooh and when Theo's like, um, what is that supposed to mean? And it, there's a couple other lines in between this. But what Nell says to call her out is the world is full of inconsistencies, you know, unnatural things. Ooh. Nature's mistakes, they're called. Few, for instance. Yikes. Nell. Unambiguously, that is Nell saying you're gay. And that's and you're, gross. And you're disgusting for it. Shit. And Theo has such a visceral reaction like it's the first time we see Theo like emotional and like doesn't know what to do because it hurt her so much yeah so you know now like pushes Theo away when Theo tries to quote-unquote control her by helping her calm down yeah (laughs) and then uh the doctor's wife shows up and Nell immediately gets jealous because here's this woman who's apparently married to the guy that I like and as a I mean, the the wife is not joking at all, but she's it comes off as a joke in that way that people who don't believe in the supernatural always sound like they're like fucking with mm-hmm. you. So she says that she wants to sleep in the most haunted room of the house. Mm. 
And the doctor is like, Grace, that's not how it works. You know, there we don't have anything like that. There's no dungeon or anything. And Nell goes, well, there's the nursery. And it's the one room they haven't been able to get into. Ooh, uh, creepy. It's the room where Abigail died. And it's, yeah, like, they, it's the one locked door in the house. And immediately the doctor is like, <clears throat> like, Eleanor, what the hell? <clears throat> and then the wife is like, oh, perfect. I'll sleep in the nursery. And Nell goes from fuck this woman, I want her to sleep in the scary room, to, oh god, what am I doing? And immediately starts trying to take it back. Oh, interesting. So it's that weird thing of, like, I think Nell is the haunting and the haunted. I think it's her, like, a manifestation of her mental health mixed with whatever psychic abilities she has, where, like, she's either creating a situation at at Hell House or is enhancing what's already there. Mm Mm-hmm. But then also desperately trying to escape it because that's not the person she wants to be. That is super interesting. And I think that that is a cool, I guess, callback or reference to in the very end of Hill House. She, they make her leave because she's clearly being affected by it. And she just keeps thinking to herself, yeah, but they can't make me leave because Hill House wants me here. Yeah, she thinks that when... um... So the doctor's wife sleeps in the nursery and then is gone the next morning. She's missing. Yes. And Nell is near hysterics, so they make Nell leave. And basically, like, the doctor is like, we're all leaving because now I have to call the police and find my wife. And Nell says, it's not fair. It's, It's my fault. The house wants me, not her. Wow. And I think she even says, I can't remember if she says this in... I think she says it in 1963. Something similar happens in the 1999 version, but yeah, in 19, I'm pretty sure in 1963, as they're like hustling Nell out to her car, she says, uh, Mrs. Markway can't satisfy it. Not like I can. Interesting. Yeah. So it's very clear that like the house wants her, but like, does it or does Nell want the house at that point? It's the same thing. I think it's the same thing. Sorry. Okay. So <laughs> real quick to wrap up my point that I thought yes. I think it's a cool nod. We're we're a mess. Today. Yeah, I don't know if this if her why am I doing this look. She mm-hmm. they make her leave and she's like they can't make me leave because Hill House wants me here. And then she instead of leaving drives her car into a tree and dies. On purpose? Yeah. But oh. she aims it for the tree and presses down on the pedal. And the instant before the car hits the tree, she thinks, wait, why am I doing this? Oh, my God. Right? Whoa. Yeah. So, uh, same thing in the movie. Only in the movie, she's in, like, a weird fugue state Mm -hmm. post-hysteria. And she's driving recklessly in the dark through the woods. Oh. To leave the house because they've made her. But in her head, she's thinking, they can't make me leave. I belong here. Yeah. And for a minute, she like closes her eyes and almost seems to drift off. And when she opens her eyes, she's facing a tree. And as she's realizing that she's facing a tree, the missing Mrs. Markway runs in front of the car like the ghost of Bigfoot. What the fuck? Yeah. So it's like this weird thing where like, and it's the same tree where the first Mrs. Crane crashed her carriage and died. Yeah. So that's an interesting connection, too. But there's this whole thing where when they find the car and they realize that Nell is dead, um, 
Mrs. Markway is like, I I don't know how I got out here. I don't know what I'm doing. That's like, so she's, interesting. Yeah. She says she woke up in the middle of the night and she was scared. She tried to find her husband and she got lost and she doesn't know how she even got outside. And Theo is like, well, you've killed her. Seeing you made her lose control of the car. And Mrs. Markway is like, no, she was already losing control of the car. She only saw me at the last second when I saw her. Wow. So there's even ambiguity surrounding Nell's death. Like, we don't know if it if it was something she chose or not. Yeah, I think that that ambiguity is still there, despite the fact that she chooses it. And then it's like, wait, why am I doing this? Because going back to, is Nell the house? Yeah. <laughs> because I think that she's the house. I think so. Because after <laughs> the big, like, climax poltergeist activity where... It's hard to tell exactly what's happening because Nell is, like, going out of her mind in this scene. Mm-hmm. So she describes it feeling like the house picks up from the ground and slams down. And she suddenly feels like she's outside of her body. And, like, there's all this oh whoa. yeah stuff happening. Um, And, like, she's, like, pounding on the door. And it looks like the door is coming away from the door frame kind of stuff. Uh, while everyone is already in the room, you know. Oh, sick. Yeah. And... Then after that, she is aware of everything that's happening in the house and on the grounds. Whoa. Like, the next morning, they're having breakfast, and Theodora is like, do they know that that uh, Mrs. Dudley cleans up at 10? Because they'll mix, miss breakfast. And Eleanor is like, no, they're coming now. I hear them on the stairs. Despite the fact oh, that what the hell? she, you can't hear them from the stairs from where you are. And then it describes oh, how she's aware of them walking down the stairs. So it's like the house absorbed her. Yeah, or she absorbed the house. Okay, I is this line in the book, because this is when Nell is first left alone in her room in the 1963 version. And this line is in the 2018 version, too, which makes me think it probably came from the novel. Mm-hmm. But uh, she basically says that the house vored her. <laughs> Yeah, she, she, oh no, I don't think it's when she's in her room. I can't remember. It's the first time she's like alone in the house. Yes. And she says, I'm a small creature swallowed whole by a monster and the monster feels my tiny movements inside. Yeah, that's in the book. Yeah, like, what? (laughs) Yeah. What? And that's so powerful. It's so good. Yeah. And I don't know who becomes who. Because in the ninth chapter which is the final chapter of the book, Eleanor can't sleep and she gets up in the middle of the night and she says to herself that she's going to go to the library, which she's had a visceral fear of for the whole book. And yeah, and she says, I can't go in there. And she's the only one that smells this horrible rotten smell from the library. And she gets up in the middle of the night and she decides to herself that she's going to go to the library. And if anyone asks what she's doing, she'll say that she couldn't sleep and she's going to get a book, but she needs to go to the library. And then, like, changes her mind halfway through and starts running up and down the halls, banging on the doors. What the fuck? No. Which is the same activity that the poltergeist activity was is going up and down the hallways banging on the doors and while she's doing this she's like they won't come out because they're too afraid so i can just keep doing this and no one will see me and she also gets she starts like giggling and behaving like a child which i think is really interesting that is so creepy right but she pounds on theodora's door 
And at this point, they're sharing a room because Theodora's room was trashed. Right. And Theodora wakes up and says something to the effect of, Nell, where's Nell? Because she's not in bed. And all this crazy stuff is happening. Uh-huh. And Nell thinks, poor house, she forgot Eleonora. Um... What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Now they'll come out and see me. Something like that. What? Yeah. What? Yeah, so she just is the house now, I guess? Man, okay, again, like, I, this keeps coming back to ambiguity. But it reminded me, she makes reference in the film to the story of the lady or the tiger. Mm-hmm. Which I'd never heard of before. But it's in a scene where she and Theo are lost in the house they aren't sure if anyone else has arrived yet and they're trying to find the dining room basically okay but they can't even find a light switch to turn on and so they're just opening and closing doors just frantically trying to figure out where they are and obviously both getting scared and when dr markway finds them nell sort of in relief says something about this all these doors and she says it reminds me of the story of the lady and the tiger I thought that if I wrote it down, I would remember, but I don't want to get it wrong because it was, like, really relevant. Okay. So let me get the Wikipedia article open. Um, okay. It's a short story written by Frank R. Stockton in 1882. And Wikipedia says, the short story takes place in a land ruled by a semi-barbaric king. A person accused of a crime is brought into a public arena and must choose one of two doors. Behind one door is a lady whom the king has deemed an appropriate match for the accused. Behind the other is a fierce, hungry tiger. Both doors are heavily soundproof to prevent the accused from hearing what is behind each one. If he chooses the door with the lady behind it, he is innocent and therefore must marry her. But if he chooses the door with the tiger behind it, he is deemed guilty and is immediately devoured. Interesting. So the king learns that his daughter has a lover, but he is of lower status than the princess. So he has this man imprisoned to await trial. When the day comes, the princess has used her influence to learn the positions of the lady and the tiger behind the two doors. But she also discovers that her father has chosen uh, a woman that she hates to be the lady behind the door. Okay. So she thinks that this woman is a rival for the affections of her lover. So she has the opportunity to tell him which door to choose. But because of her hatred and jealousy of this other woman, the story is left ambiguous as to which fate she decided was better for him. Oh, interesting. But it's based off of her own selfishness. Does she love him enough to let him live or does she want to possess him enough to make him die? Interesting. And I thought it was such a good reference to make in this moment where Nell and Theo are lost and frantically opening doors and they don't know what's behind them, but they have to open them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's such an interesting reference to make because of the relationship that Hill House and Eleanor have. Yeah, it's that ambiguity. Well, and of- Eleanor says a lot of times, but also for some reason upon seeing Hill House, as soon as she's done being appalled by it, she thinks journeys end in lovers meeting. But she also has the thought that the house has swallowed her. Yeah. So like, so it's both. <laughs> it's both. Which is, and it's Nell's like constant misunderstanding of her own desires and wants. Yeah. I, I love this movie. <laughs> oh, man. It's just so much. 
It's so much. So if we're ready to move on to the 1999 version. Yes. Just going off of the ambiguity thing, we've talked about that so much, and it's something that we obviously deeply appreciate about mm-hmm. the story. It doesn't exist in 1999. What? <laughs> My overall take of this movie is they did way too much. Mm. I think all of the things that make the horror or terror aspect of the novel and the 1963 movie are what make it so fantastic. Yeah. I I think not knowing what causes the haunting, not knowing if it's going to continue, not understanding exactly how it works, all of that is what makes it so scary. Mm-hmm. Because there aren't answers. And my experience with a lot of horror is sort of as soon as the answers start to come in and we see what the problem is and how to solve it, I stop being scared. Right. And that's a big criticism of horror in general. Right. And so I think that's something Shirley Jackson did so well. And then also something that the the writer-director of the movie did, um, which I should probably credit him. It was Frank Wise, who actually also directed West Side Story and The Sound of Music. Oh. He did Hill oh, House. <laughs> yeah, I knew that. It's in the introduction to Hill House. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, in 1999, again, like I said, right off the bat, there's like this lack of, almost like a lack of understanding of what even made the premise of the original story so great, hmm. where they just like ruined it with this, it's an insomnia study and no one believes in the haunting and ugh. But they also just, they create answers where there shouldn't be mm-hmm. any. So for one thing, in 1999, Nell doesn't just have this weird draw towards the house. She's literally a descendant of Hugh Crane. Oh. And she doesn't know that at the time. And so at first, when all of the poltergeist activity is happening, like it's focused on her. And she doesn't understand what's going on. But it's all... I don't want to take up the whole rest of this podcast just talking about the 99 movie, but it's like, it's all so bad. Just the way that they do everything is so bad. For one thing, they didn't have the rights to recreate anything from the original film. Huh. They couldn't recreate even a single shot. So by dint of that, it had to be completely Mm -hmm. different. But it didn't, the story didn't have to be as different as it is. So... She has the same backstory, basically. Her family's still shitty. It doesn't want her to have a car, all of that stuff. But right off the bat, there's this weird thing where, like, we see the room where Nell's mother died. Mm -hmm. And it's, she has kept it exactly the same. Creepy. And there's this weird, it's like, okay, it's like they wanted to do a Chekhov's gun thing, but they did it with, like, literally everything. (laughs) So it's just sort of like every third shot, you're like, does this... Do I need to remember this? Is this the loaded gun? Which one's the loaded gun? We don't know. Um, They add two extra characters for literally a single scene and then get rid of them. Are they people that also (laughs) answered the call and then didn't stay? So one of them is the doctor's assistant slash secretary. Her name is Mary. The other guy is a guy named Tom. He's just there. Huh. We don't know. They just, he, they show up with the doctor and he's like, this is my assistant, Mary. This is Tom. Because <laughs> at least in in the book, they mentioned that two other people were supposed to come and then bailed out for whatever reason. Yeah, they mentioned that in the 1963 movie too. Um, no, these are just, these are just two people. Weird. 
But so here's the thing is like Mary is already creeped out by the mm-hmm. house. Like there's a scene in the very beginning where she's talking to the doctor about, you know, helping because she's answering the applications and stuff. She's deciding who gets to be part of the faux insomnia study. But she's like, why are you going to that house? It's creepy. I wish you wouldn't do it at that house right from the get go. And he's just like, ah, Mary, <laughs> ah, silly Mary. It's, it's just a house. And then she doesn't want to be there. And so she, but she goes with, cause that's her job. And they're all chilling in the parlor while the doctor tells the creepy story of Hugh Crane and all of his dead family, mm-hmm. basically. And Mary gets really agitated. And uh, I can't remember. Someone asks a question and the doctor is like, oh, no, that's it. That's the end of the story. And Mary is like, no, no, there's more to the story. And she like gets up and she's like really agitated and is like, can't you feel it? Can't you feel what's going on in here? And is like losing it. And there's a shot of um, the inside of the grand piano where one of the strings is slowly being loosened by nothing. And as Mary's having her little freak out, she backs up to the piano and the string snaps and cuts her across the face. What the fuck? Right. And then everyone's freaking out. And the doctor is like, we got to get her to the hospital right away. Tom, drive her to the hospital. So this Tom dude, who I legit don't even think he had a speaking role. I don't remember him speaking just gets Mary in a car and is like, okay, and they leave. And, and they it. were never seen or heard from again. Yeah, though. They just gone. Like, it's like, why were they here? How weird. <laughs> they didn't need to be there at all. It was, I don't know, maybe they were trying to use Mary to set up that, like, no, it really is haunted. But, like, bitch, we already knew that. Yeah. The movie's called The Haunting. It just, it's very weird. So, like, that's a thing that just didn't need to happen couple other things that really did not need to happen it's same premise well not same premise but same situation where Nell and Theo show up first and they're briefly alone in the house they're wandering around looking at all the big vast expanses of hallways and stuff and there is (laughs) this giant door to one of the parlors between a parlor and the main hall and it has all of these huge intricate carvings that depict the gateway to heaven at the top, purgatory in the middle, and tortured souls in hell at the bottom. Interesting. Here we are and talking it's... about Dante's Divine Comedy again. <laughs> yeah, but this door, it's like a two-story tall door. It's massive. Huh. Everything in this house is just massive. And we'll get to that in a second. So they're looking at this door. Theo, it has been established, likes art. So she, I think she's an artist. So they're kind of she's kind of like approaching it from an artistic standpoint. She says it depicts hell. And Nell is like, no, look, it's purgatory. And she points out a couple things. And then let me just do this dramatic reading for you. I wrote this down verbatim. Theo says, did you study art? Nell, hands on the door, turns around, eyes wide and goes, no, I studied purgatory. I was there once for 11 years. Interesting. I just, and it's like out of nowhere. You're just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, what? And then you find out she was referring to having to care for her elderly mother for 11 right. years. As purgatory. And, like, and Theo, like, reacts. But then it just is like, okay, sure. <laughs> like, the reactions are so, like, stunted where like Nell says that and Theo kind of like raises her eyebrows but then the conversation just carries on as if that wasn't the weirdest possible thing a person could say it's 
bizarre. And there's a couple other moments like that. But so there's these huge doors and they're, this is a, a, the only plot point that I found interesting is that the doors are always open a little bit. Uh, uh-huh. They're just like the doors always cracked. Okay. Open. Is it a thing in the 63 movie that the doors are always closed? It's a thing in the 63 movie where doors close by themselves. Okay. It's a, the thing in the book is that the doors close by themselves, but they are always closed. Yes. And yeah, it's like that in 63. They're difficult to open and it's because they're all hung crooked. Well, that's their uh theory, but it's that's also left ambiguous. And especially because when Eleanor has her break and is one with the house, she doesn't uh-huh. have a problem opening the doors. They're all really easy to open. Oh, God. Open doors is such a through line in every version. I love that. In the, in the 1963 one, uh, the doctor just says that the man who built the house built it, built it as a reflection. Uh, <laughs> built it as a reflection of his own tangled mind. Okay. That's a fair assessment. And therefore... Right, and therefore all the doors are hung slightly off, and there are no square angles in the entire house. Yes. So that's the reason like, why the doors close in the 63 version, or so they say. I did notice that because in 1999, the doors are like open. Yeah. <laughs> but mostly these big hell doors. How odd. Right, but, but moving along. Yes. So, so they see the hell doors, and then they're, again, they're just like wandering around the house. Here's where it just got... This is where it started for me to just be like, what am I watching? And it only got worse from here. They open a door and as it opens, there's like a mechanical clicking noise inside the wall. Mm -hmm. And the whole room, it's ballroom sized. It is completely lined in mirrors like a fun house. And the floor has rotating panels so you can stand there and circle the mirrors. That is so much, dude. And just why? What is that, right? So I'm like, what is going on? And Nell and Theo, like, let's just, I want to play this out for a second. Okay. You and I are in a house. A creepy as fuck house. Uh, not even that creepy so far. Just really big, really grand. We find a weird door that has like carvings of hell on it. Uh-huh. I'd be like, that's pretty sick, but also weird. Why would you want that in your house? Mm-hmm. Then we find a room with a rotating floor and mirrors. Okay. I'm going to go out on the limb here and say that you and I, even if we weren't friends, even as strangers, mm-hmm. my natural reaction would be to go, huh, no, <laughs> I'm not going in there. Um, it de- Who built it this? It totally depends on the vibe of the house. Because if the house is like creepy and I'm uncomfortable, sure, yeah, I don't want anything to do with that. But I... I just don't think I would go. I think I would be like, yo, what? I mean, if it's chill. Who built this? That'd be cool. (laughs) Maybe if it was chill. But I also feel like if there's this huge house and it has a fun house room with spinning floors, maybe someone should like put that on the pamphlet. True. Yeah. That's something you should be forewarned about. You know? It's like, it's just, what is that? But they, these two women, are just like, haha, isn't this fun? And they go in there and start, like, dancing around and giggling about it. Hmm. They have a great time. And then the next shot is them, like, running through the house like children laughing. And they run through this hallway that is, <laughs> wait for it, narrow stone hallway, sunken area of the floor, full of water. Mm-hmm. 
with stepping stones, but the stepping stones are carved to look like stacks of books. In the hallway? And they're just like, in, just in a hallway, just some random passageway. And they're just like, aha, isn't this so funny? Look. And they're just like running through it. Like, it's so great. And I'm like, hello? What's on the other side of the hallway? <laughs> Nothing. It's just a hallway. It's just, it just goes to another part of the house. It's just a hallway. But the, the, here's the thing is those are the only two whimsical parts of the house. So it'd be like one thing if the whole house is this weird, has this weird whimsy to it. But it's just those two things. There's a fun house room and a book That's hallway. weird. Yeah. And the rest of the house has these very like severe grand carvings of like children's faces <laughs> like a, so many children's faces carved all over this Ugh. house but everything else is just i mean it's just like an old tudor mansion you know like what you would expect only with a bunch of weird creepy kid carvings mm-hmm. and then just there happens to be a fun house room and a book hallway that literally never gets talked about that is it's never brought super up super weird no one's yeah and then and this is before they hear the history of the house and you know hugh crane so you, you'd fucking think that the doctor would be like, aha, Hugh Crane, he, he built a fun house. Right. Because his whole backstory in this one is all he ever wanted was to have children. Mm-hmm. He just, he built this huge house to have a family in and all he ever wanted was to fill it with the sounds of children, but he and his wife were never able to have kids. Okay. That's fucking weird because Dr. Montague has an aside in the book where he's talking about this the book that he's reading and how it would put anyone to sleep. And he says, I've always wanted to try it on young children, implying a, he's always wanted children and a family and B that he and his wife are not able to have children. Oh, that's just weird. The whole story of Hugh Crane in this one is just, it's bonkers.com. He wants kids. He owns a textile factory. He built this huge house to have a big family. Although I do want to point out that specifically, what the doctor says is he wanted to fill the house with the sounds of children. Okay, that's a little different and uh-huh. can be creepy. And it, it sure gets creepy. So as the story progresses, Nell starts hearing the voices of children. Mm-hmm. And there's this pretty dope, but also the weirdest thing ever that I think I've seen in a film moment where she's asleep and there's like child noises happening in the ambiance. And it shows like her curtain blowing in the wind and this there's a cgi little shape of a child like swimming through the fabric the like it's water and they swim off the curtain onto nell's bed sheets and then they're like back stroking up the um. bed like, <laughs> it was like pretty dope cgi but also i was like what am i watching <laughs> and they're just uh they're just getting up there so they can whisper creepy shit in nell's ear um and they they yeah they wake her up in the middle of the night she finds little bloody child footprints and she follows them to a secret study behind a bookshelf where she finds the ledgers from crane's textile mill and and on his list of employees are children because it was the 1800s Mm -hmm. when he had a textile mill and almost all of the children listed as employees are dead and somehow she surmises that that means that he killed them and trapped them in the house. Yeah, he walled them in. This does not get explained. She looks at this ledger and then is like, oh, he killed them. And then is like, she goes and wakes up Theo and is like, Theo, look what I found. Look, he killed them and they're trapped inside the house. It's like, what? Well, that's quite the leap. It's such a huge leap. And Theo is like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, it doesn't, there's no through line. And there's another moment like that where like, 
she's up late by herself because again insomnia and there's like the portraits on the walls start moving and there's this portrait of like a, a younger woman that she sees in a couple different places in the house but it's not hugh crane's wife huh and she's like looking at this portrait and this younger woman is like calling her name and then like gestures the the portrait like moves and as she gestures a background fills in and it's the fireplace in the main parlor and she like gestures to the fireplace and then Nell is like oh god Carolyn Carolyn was his second wife and where are you getting your information Eleanor right and then she runs down to the giant fireplace in the parlor and pulls open the ash pit and digs through it and there's Carolyn's bones hello yeah and she's just like that's what's going on and here's where I want to talk about the hugeness and the bizarreness of this house because this fireplace I want to take a little a little aside just to say that um most of the activity in the book is children so interesting like there's the she initially thinks the knocks are her mother until she's like fully awake and then aside from that I think it all is like child stuff okay so at least they kept that (laughs) but again they like created reasons for yeah where it's just you're filling in these blanks that were the reason why I was scared yeah no the reason is it comes back to houses being a representation of mother again and Eleanor's trauma and not having matured because of it that no none of that exists in huh. this, one. this is all about Eleanor's shitty family her mother who died and left her all alone with her shitty family and how she's desperately looking for someone to love her huh. and the answer to that is the ghost children that Hugh Crane murdered in his factory and trapped inside the walls of his <sighs> creepy house that's what this story is she surmises somehow through a, looking at a picture that Carolyn was a second wife she surmises that Hugh Crane has kept the children's spirits in this house somehow. Part of the big climax is she eventually finds herself. She, so she goes into like the, the, she has like the mental break and she's in this sort of like haunting driven psychosis. Mm-hmm. And she wanders around the house. She sees bizarre reflections of herself in the funhouse room, including one where she's nine months pregnant mm-hmm. for reasons. <clears throat> and then she ends up at the nursery at the top of the spiral staircase because there's a spiral staircase in every mm-hmm. version. And it's the exact same room that her mother died in. The, the nursery is? Yeah, the nursery in Hill House, same room as the house her mom what? died in, in Eleanor's apartment. What? Same room. <laughs> That's just how it be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then, again, I want to I give you a little dramatic reading here because I wrote this down verbatim. I need you to see how bizarre this is. The rest of our, our team of heroes finds her up there and they're like, Nell, what is going on? She turns around and is staring at them and goes, this was the room Carolyn had her baby in before she ran away. And and the children, they wanted me to see this so that I would know this is my home. Carolyn was my great-great-grandmother and the children are my family. Eleanor. Yep. <laughs> that's, that's it. None of it is shown through the actual story. It's just we see Nell's bizarre like little haunting psychosis moment and then she just tells us what it means that is so weird and despite the ghost of hugh crane repeatedly physically attacking now including trying to kill her with her own bed uh his giant face comes out of the ceiling and then he opens his mouth and instead of a tongue it's a bunch of little arms giant face (laughs) yeah giant face takes up the whole ceiling of her room little arms come out of his mouth they're like grabbing at her despite that 
she goes on to insist that as long as she's in the house, he can't hurt the children. And that's why she has to stay. Okay. Fine. Whatever makes you happy. The piece de resistance, in my opinion, is when, oh, the fireplace. Yeah. You were telling me about a two-story fireplace. It's at least a story tall. It is floor-to-ceiling fireplace. It's... The maw of the fireplace is that big? Yes. The Jesus. actual... Yes. Um, I think probably, granted I have dyscalculia, I can't uh, estimate very well, but there is a shot with all four of the main characters standing in the fireplace abreast. You could probably fit two or three people on either side of them. That's big. It's the size of my living room. It's massive. And when they're first sort of investigating the fireplace, it's because Nell thinks that she sees a face, like, fall down from the chimney. Okay. Which, I'm no expert on fireplaces, but I did grow up with a wood stove. Um, What it ends up being, what she saw, is a ginormous carved lion's head that's sort of connected to something that comes out of the chimney and it can swing back and forth like a pendulum. Why would you need that in your fireplace? Hold up. Again, no expert. But what Theo says is, oh, it's an old antique flu. Uh, And they're just like, oh, yes, an antique flu. They would carve them like this sometimes. And I'm like, am I misunderstanding what a flu is? Yeah. Sure. Maybe a portion of the flu, depending on the construction of the fireplace, maybe it could like be broken and it slides down out of the chimney. Okay. Why would there be a giant carved lion head on the bottom of it? Like, what function does that have? No one's going to see that if it's part of the flu. The flu is inside the chimney. (laughs) Yeah, I'm... I'm a little confused on that. It's not a decorative element of a wood stove. (laughs) And why would any part of your flu be on a pendulum? Yeah. And so I'm not sure if they're implying that like it's broken and therefore maybe it's it can't stay up in the chimney anymore. So it's like dangling or whatever. But it just literally makes no sense. Yeah, that's weird. And this I mean, this lion's head, the size of like head to torso of the average person. Huge. Just a big lion's head, okay? And they're just like, oh, yep, it's a flu. And um, first of all, (laughs) it comes out of the fireplace and scares Nell. She runs out of the room to get everyone else. They come back in, and it is no longer out of the chimney. Okay. But then as they're standing there, it comes swinging out of the chimney again. As one does. And then it's just back up in the chimney for the rest of the movie. Until... (laughs) Hugh Crane's ghost has gone buck wild. He's going after them, trying to keep them from leaving the house. I don't really understand why. How tall is he? Oh, no, he is the house. Oh, okay. He's the house. He comes out of the walls. His face is the ceiling. Like, he just... Cool. He can just make things in the house warp and move. So he's trying to get them all to leave, but Nell refuses to leave. And the others refuse to leave without Nell. Luke... Gets first of all played by Owen Wilson, so just that's a really important aspect to picture in this. Played by Owen Wilson, he gets pushed over, dragged magic carpet style into the giant fireplace. Okay, Uh slides across the floor. He stands up and is like, "It's okay, I'm okay." And then the lion head swings down out of the chimney and decapitates him. And then is it like stuck on his torso, and he like has a lion head instead? God. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he falls over 
and his head explodes. <laughs> Luke's head flies off his body. And it's on screen. We see it happen. Flies off his body. He fa- His body falls. He is fully dead. The lion head is swinging back and forth with his head guts on it. Theo and Dr. Mark Way freak out the way one does when they uh-huh. see something so horrific. And Nell just goes, oh, no. <laughs> She's just like, like, damn, I was really hoping that wouldn't happen. Shoot. <laughs> I guess the house got Luke. <laughs> Whoopsie. <laughs> it's wild. And then there's no mourning. There's no like moment where they cope with what they've just seen. Nell is just like, y'all got to go. And they immediately go right back into running from Hugh Crane's ghost as if they didn't just see Luke get decapitated. It's like, oh, well, that happened. And now back to this. Jesus. Right? And here's where we get another just very bizarre line from Eleanor where... <laughs> So he wanted to fill the house with the sounds of children, right? So we've been led to believe that he either killed kids on purpose. I mean, Nell says he killed them on purpose, so I guess that's true. But I think you could also argue that maybe kids died in his factory and he kept their ghosts, I guess. You know, because he's like, I want children, so these my children now. Mm-hmm. Either way, he has he wanted children, now he has children. And so we've been led to believe that, like, He somehow sees them as family, right? Okay. Until they're running around and Nell casually throws out that it's like a game of hide and seek. And then goes, he's still hunting them. I was like, does he hunt them for sport? So (laughs) fucking creepy. Like, does his ghost hunt them for sport now that he's trapped them there? Or did he hunt those kids for sport and then trap them in his house once they were dead? (laughs) Like, what is going on? (laughs) That is so much. And this all happens within like 10 minutes. It's like, they're being haunted. Pictures are flying off the walls. Luke gets decapitated. It's hide and seek. And Hugh Grain hunts children for sport. And I was like frantically taking notes, like pausing it, (laughs) taking deep breaths. Like, oh my God, I can't keep up. It's just one thing after another of like, what is this? What am I watching? (laughs) That is incredible. This isn't even the end yet. Okay. (laughs) We're close. Nell dies as she does in the other versions. But she dies in this one by confronting the hell door, calling on the powers of purgatory and her love of family and her insistence that the children are hers now. And somehow through sheer force of belief and will, Hugh Crane gets grabbed by the demons of the door and dragged down into the hell carvings. What? (laughs) And that releases the children of the house and it shows their creepy little like head shoulders little faces like in like relief and euphoria floating upwards on the door towards heaven and then Nell collapses and her spirit leaves her body and joins them on the door what credits roll funhouse music plays (laughs) that is the wildest thing i have ever heard (laughs) that's it that's the 1999 version that is that is Tell me about it. <laughs> How do you even begin to process that? Holy I, shit. I don't know, but I just really wanted to end part one on that journey. <laughs> that. This is how you do not do an adaptation. This is how you ruin a scary story. <laughs> that is, I really wish that the 
Stone Lion Head had just like lived on Owen Wilson's. <laughs> it was just swinging body. back and forth with Luke's body. That's so horrific. I hate <laughs> or you. like he just gets stuck on his dead body, and then he like his like body like lives a second, decapitated and like staggers with the LV. Oh my god! Stop! And then it collapses. Stone Lion Head rolls away. Oh my god! Because you know what this movie needs is more. <laughs> I think it needs more. It definitely needs more. It needs more ridiculousness, and I think that would really just bring it home. I mean, like we spent the whole the first hour of this episode talking about how fantastic and nuanced and subtle and beautiful and scary the first story was, and then it's just like, well, in 1999 we go to the circus. <laughs> oh, I want to watch this now. Honestly, it sounds let's like do a it. good time. <laughs> I would watch it again to laugh at it. I mean, it sounds like a terrible movie, but like in a fun way. I didn't want to go off too much about the 99 version, but I would be remiss to skim over it. Yeah. Wow. So I'm Convokes Most Places at Jim and the Deer Boy on Instagram and Twitter. I am Hella Lambs on Instagram and Twitter and honestly pretty much everywhere. <laughs> and in part two, we will tackle the house as a character and as a metaphor yes. and overall the genre of haunted house media. Yes. So come back for that or click over to it because it's already up. Yeah. And be careful out there in the night, in the dark.